If you have your Bibles with you, please open them to Acts. Acts chapter 8, which is on page 534 of the blue Bible that's underneath the chair in front of you, at least somewhere. If you don't have a Bible at home, please take that one and bring it home and read it. Start with the Gospel of John or Mark and just simply ask us questions of what do we learn about who Jesus is and who we are. So Acts chapter 8 is where we are today. And as you turn there, let me ask you this question. Have you ever had this situation where you've looked all over the house for something and you just can't find it? Yeah, I know. And everyone's like, if you're on social media, you go on TikTok or you go on to Instagram, they're all the same now. It doesn't matter. Um, they're always making fun of the men who can't find it. But that's not true, okay? I'm married. We all do it. It doesn't matter what male or female, husband, wife, you're all losing something. The older you get, it's often your glasses because they're on top of your head and you're wandering around trying to find your glasses. Mine are always on my face. So, uh, although sometimes I forget I'm not wearing them. But we all have that situation where we're looking around trying to find something, trying to search something, and we've all been there, and you've looked around, and you ask your spouse or your sibling or whoever, your roommate, and you said, where is this thing that I was looking for? And they say, well, I just saw it. It's right over here. And you go, man, I, I swear, I was, I was just there. I saw, I didn't see anything. It's like you have these blinders on. You're looking, and you're searching for something, and you just can't find it. When you're searching for something, we often need direction. There's this hymn written in 1904 <clears throat> that goes like this. Uh, and it's, unri- it's uh, unknown who wrote it, but it goes like this. I sought the Lord, and afterward I knew it. He moved my soul to seek him, seeking me. It was not I that found, O Savior true. No, I was found of thee. In Acts 8, which is on, again, page 534 of those blue Bibles, we see the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a man who was searching. And how God sovereignly brings another man into his life to explain to him the good news of Jesus Christ, all the way from the Old Testament. But within this, we see this amazing thing, that God is the one who initiates and fulfills it all. So if you have your Bibles, follow along with me. Acts 8, starting at verse 26. For those who may be new, the big numbers are the chapters and the little numbers are the verses. So verse 26 says this. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go towards the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah, the prophet, and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, the passage of the scripture that was reading, that he was reading, sorry, was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shear is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. 
Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does this prophet say this about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water. And Philip the eunuch, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself in Astos, and he, as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father God, we come to continue to worship you. As we listen, as your word is preached, this is worship. So Lord, I pray that you would make much of yourself, that we would decrease in this time, that you would increase, that you would open up our hearts and our ears to hear what your word has to say. So Lord, I pray that by your spirit, you would convict us, encourage us, spur us on as your word is preached. Lord, I want to preach so that you are glorified. I want to speak of you, and I want to praise your name. And God, I can't do this on my own. So by your spirit, help me to preach this sermon with what is needed. Use this sermon to bring glory to your name, and joy to your people, and salvation to the lost. And amen. <clears throat> the gospel is spoken. That's what we see in the first part here in verses 26 to 35. The gospel is spoken. And I think this is an important thing for us in our world because often within the church, we think we can speak the gospel without actually speaking, which makes no sense, really, right? Because you can't speak something unless you actually speak. I know it seems logical and redundant, but let's get this straight, right? The gospel is spoken. In verse 26 to 35, we see that. In verse 26, this one simple word says, now. So the last couple of weeks, we saw God do great and amazing things as Philip preached the gospel to Samaria. A mass conversion of God calling a mass group of people to himself. And then we are introduced to Peter and to John who go there as well. And we meet this man named Simon. And as we saw last week with Pastor Chris, we saw that difference between being captivated by the person and work of Jesus and being captivated by what we get out of Jesus. Elevating the gift above the giver of the gifts. Now Peter and John go on their way back to Jerusalem, but Philip, he goes further south. And the word of the Lord continues to increase and spread from this little geographical location of Jerusalem and now to Samaria and now soon to the ends of the earth. And God sends an angel of the Lord to talk to him, a messenger of God directly sending Philip into a specific location, to a desert place. So now, we often read this story, we often read a lot of stories with the Bible and go, wow, man, that person's awesome. Look what they did. Look at all the things they did. But look closer. Who's taking the initiative in all of this? This mission is entirely of God's initiative. Not one part of it. Philip was just chilling in Samaria until an angel of the Lord told him to go. Philip is simply being a faithful witness. He's being faithful to what God has called him to as a believer. And God sends him to this desert place. Now think about it. Philip has just had 
a very, very successful time of preaching the gospel in Samaria. We see that the Samaritans receive the gospel with joy and expectation of what God does. Now, the Holy Spirit has just poured out on them as well. And you can see all these things happening. Imagine all those conversations. Now, God was taking him from a successful place to another place where it wasn't exactly the most ideal place to go. It's described as a desert place. Not a lot of people hanging out in the desert. Have you ever been to the desert? It's pretty deserted. That's why they call it a desert. That and it's really hot. But literally a desert. And I love what Peter, uh, it's not Peter, what Philip does. He doesn't hum and haw about whether he should go or not. He goes with almost excitement, and we see a little bit of that later on as he runs to the chariot. He simply gets up and obeys to what God has called him to do. And God, again, is the one who will do the work, but here Philip is being used by God to go tell the gospel. And I think of 1 Corinthians 3, verses 6 to 11, where it says, I planted, I being Paul, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So whether he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. We are God's fields, God's building. So even in this desert place, God will bring growth, and the word of the Lord will continue to increase. I think there's a few things, like not even location will stop the gospel from growing. We make it very easy mistake when we read this, as I was saying, when we emphasize a person as the hero. Look at what he or she did. But the point of all of this, the point of the whole Bible, one of the points of the whole Bible, is to remind us of the simple yet profound statement to our hearts. Our God is great. Nothing stops him. That he would bring what was dead alive and, what I, and that I get the opportunity to be a part of that. God brings life to this desert place and God supernaturally orchestrated this mission. This is the fulfillment of the mission that he gave his apostles back in chapter 1 verse 8. But you will receive power when this Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses. Where? In Jerusalem? Check. And in all Judea? Check. Samaria? check, and now the ends of the earth. And using his church as a means to accomplish this mission. So in Acts 8, all the way to 12, we will see the gospel expanding beyond Jerusalem and Judea and to Samaria and go to the ends of the earth. And something we learn through all of this is a simple thing, is that we are called to be a faithful witness of Jesus. That's it. It's God's job to grow his kingdom. Our job is to be faithful. There's a quote by John Stott that says this, we engage in evangelism today not because we want to or because we choose to or because we like to. I'm sure someone fits in those categories. As he continues on, but because we have been told to. So Philip gets up and goes to this desert place as we see in verse 27, he rose and went up. And there's two parts here. Philip was willing to obey God's command to go and find this man. But 
let us not also forget the other angle of what God will accomplish in the heart of the Ethiopian and what God's word does by the power of the Holy Spirit in the life of this man. God had already been working in this, the heart of this individual, of this man, so that his heart was ready to have the gospel seed planted. There he finds an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship. I don't know how many times I've read this and even was taught it growing up in the church and how many times you kind of just quickly look this over. Don't. Each part of this is important. Don't look over it too quickly because it will help us understand why Luke, who wrote Acts, says in verse 39 that the man was joyful after his baptism. See, he was an Ethiopian. He was part of the ancient Nubian kingdom, south of the Aswan on the Nile, so south of Egypt. But he was also a eunuch. So this man had been emasculated in some form. He had been castrated or something. See, the youth aren't here, so I can be a little bit more blunt. Which brings to mind a passage like Deuteronomy 23.1, which says, No one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. Don't look over it too quickly. Meaning that even though this man had all of this political authority, he was the one who oversaw all the money of the kingdom. He was part of the courts of the queen. Who is a historical figure. You can go and read about her in, the, in historical books. And even her son. He was excluded from the temple. Not only because he was a Gentile, but also because of his physical condition. He was one step further from the gospel than what we even saw with the Samaritans. But the gospel will even bridge this longer cavern as the gospel's orbit widens. But no matter what your status, we see in John 6, 44, no one can come to, the, to me unless what? The Father who sent me draws me. In this, we see how the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So now I'm going to go on a little bit of a rabbit trail, okay? So bear with me. Because there's something that I need to sidestep and address as well, because uh, I am younger, which means I am on social media, so I see a lot of weird things. And someone may come up to me, well, look, God accepted the eunuch. He must accept transgendered. And I want to make it clear that the Greek actually here is masculine, which means that this man never lost his gender as a man, but lost his sexual organs. He wasn't intersex, he wasn't transgendered, he wasn't engaged in homosexual behavior. A eunuch was always biblically still belonging to the male gender. He was never viewed as changing his gender. A eunuch was always clearly a male. And on top of that, the Bible explicitly states that God created only two genders, male and female. So you can't use the Bible to defend that. But as I get back into this text, 
we will also see that God can and will even redeem this. What seemed impossible is not impossible for God. So this man, he had come to Jerusalem to worship. And even though he couldn't convert to Judaism, he was a God-fearer. In verse 28, we see that this man is reading from a beautiful, absolutely beautiful text that speaks of the unjust suffering of God's servants. This is called the suffering servant. And in verse 29, we see that the Holy Spirit tells Philip to go to the chariot. So Philip runs. Jesus calls us to do very much the same thing already. I think some of us are going to get stuck on, well, I need to wait for an audible voice in order to be obedient. But let me remind you of Acts 1 verse 8. The Holy Spirit, through God's word, has already told us to go. So go. Don't wait. Fumble through it. Yes, you will. Terrifying? 100%. But there's also a promise that's attached to verse 8, that God will be with us, that Jesus will be with us as we do that. So Philip runs and simply asks a question. Do you understand what you're reading? And the Ethiopian in verse 31 has a natural response. Actually, I was wondering if it was a natural response because if pride was in the way, he would say, I'm good. Right? You see, God's evidence of working in the heart of this man. The Ethiopian says a natural response, how can I unless someone guides me? Do you think if you were in Philip's shoes and someone came up and you... came up to you and said, hey, uh, do you know what this text is talking about? Could you help that person out? You know, Philip loved God so much that he desired to know him more by his word so that equipped him to do these things. So there's an onus on us who are disciples to grow as disciples in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior so that we can be a faithful witness of all that God has done. I think of Romans 10, verses 14 to 16. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, and the man's going to hear this, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel as he continues on. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed that he has heard from us? See, proper guidance can help people understand what the Bible is all about. And in verse 32 to 33, the passage that the man was reading from Isaiah 53, verses 7 to 8, as I was saying, this is a great and amazing passage about the suffering servant. And he's kind of confused because it doesn't explicitly say, what is this talking about? If the man who he doesn't does not know what Jesus said back in Luke 22, verse 37, he wouldn't have known. But God sovereignly initiates this mission to bring a man who did know, Philip, to guide this man who didn't know. And do you see that God at work in this man even before Philip showed up? And this shows us something important. People need to be guided to be discipled, to have people walk with them. It's important. 
We don't just say, hey, say the sinner's prayer and you're good to go. That would be called throwing a baby into the deep end. See how Philip does it. Let us walk with people. In verse 35, Philip then opens up his mouth. And he starts with the text that this man is reading through. And he goes on to tell him the good news about Jesus and how this person is talking not just about, not about the prophet, but about Jesus. And that Jesus is the fulfillment of what Isaiah is talking about. And he begins to proclaim the gospel is spoken because how are they to hear without someone preaching? Yes, good works are good. Please, don't stop doing that. But our good works are just a method by, uh, that allows us to preach the good news. Because pragmatically speaking, it's hard to listen if your stomach is empty. But he begins with the scripture. And he, he, he told them the good news about Jesus. And Philip takes this passage that the man is reading and he begins to open it up, uh, open up the story of the New Old Testament as it focuses on Jesus and he walks with them through this. And we see this over and over in Acts. The people who are telling others about Jesus go to the Old Testament because they didn't have the New Testament yet. And the Bible is more than just a book of information or a bunch of verses. It is a story of everything about God's creation and redemption through Jesus Christ, starting from Genesis all the way through. So Isaiah's prophecy of a person who would die for sins and point it to, to the one who fulfilled God's promise as a Savior, who is Jesus Christ. See, God is sovereign over everything, giving Philip the opportunity to proclaim Christ from Isaiah, and Jesus applied this to himself back in Luke 22, verse 37. So Philip understood that this passage was specifically talking about Jesus, and this passage talks about the servant's humble submission to an unjust death. And as Philip began to explain from the Bible, you can see the lights turning on in this man's mind. This man was excluded from worship because of his own unrighteousness. His physical condition was just a, 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 a tip of the iceberg showing his eternal condition because of his sin. His physical state is just reflecting that, and he could not approach a holy God in his sinfulness. And we all have rebelled. We have all sinned against the holy God. And we all deserve one thing and one thing alone, and that's eternal judgment. We have sinned and aren't right before God. And Philip would continue to point to how Jesus is a suffering servant who, like a sheep who was led to the slaughter, meaning he wasn't complaining but doing it willingly, and like a lamb before its shears is silent, he's giving of himself to pay the punishment for the ones who rebelled and sinned the ones who are the sinners. And out of his love for his people, he went to the cross to pay the price for our sins, even though he didn't deserve it. And that's what the prophet means. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Philip explains to this man that Jesus Christ is a suffering servant. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 
that he died for his people's sins, was buried on the third day, well, sorry, was buried and on the third day rose from the dead, giving God's giant stamp of approval for the sacrifice that was made for his people. So keep your finger on Acts 8, because we got to get into Isaiah for a bit. I had a prof- and I, go to Isaiah 53, which is on page 356 of that blue Bible. I love Isaiah. I had a professor of mine who's actually a pastor here in town call it the gospel of Isaiah. It shows the sins of God's people and God's punishment, but how he will redeem them. But there's something really unique here that is telling of God redeeming a people to himself. Here is this man. Remember who he is. He's an Ethiopian, but he's also a eunuch. Remember what Deuteronomy says. And he's reading this, Isaiah 53. He's a God-fearing man who wasn't allowed to be in the innermost parts of the temple. In Isaiah 53, it talks about the suffering servant dying and paying the price for our sins. In verses 4 to 6, it says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And it ends with Isaiah 53, 12, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoils of the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and has numbered the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Like, you could just end it there and be like, oh, man. But then we get to 54, and we see the outcome of the sacrifice of the suffering servants. A new covenant has come as the suffering servant pays that price for the sins of his people. And I encourage you to go home and read these few chapters because they will fill your soul. As we see in 54 to f- verses 4 to 6, Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth is his, is he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast out, cast off, says our God. And then we get to Isaiah 55, verses 1 to 3. Come, everyone who is thirsty. Come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for, what, for which is not bread and your labor for, what, for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. 
And then we get to 56, verses 3 to 5. We see the outcome of what Jesus is doing. And now we begin to understand why this man is reading this passage. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. This counteracts everything that this man is facing. Did he catch it? In Christ, the promises of Isaiah come to this man. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument, something he would not have, a name better than sons and daughters, which he cannot have. And I will give him an everlasting name that shall not be cut off, which would happen if you can't have children. It's through Jesus that this man will know redemption and renewal of every part of his life. And you can too. What this man, a eunuch, just heard are the words of life as Philip walks with him. He heard the good news. He heard about the person and the work of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ had died for his sins and rose again. And for him who believes and rests in Jesus, he will have life. No longer will he be marked by his physical condition, but is now known as a co-heir with Christ. He may never have a physical family, but he will be part of God's family. He will be a child of the living God. He will, and we are all this. We are all broken outside of Christ. We are all sinners. Yet the suffering servant led like a lamb to the slaughter to pay the price for our sins, for all those who are in Christ. This all happened because, because God sovereignly brought Philip to this man in the middle of nowhere to explain to him the gospel so that he may believe. And I've been thinking about this because I spent some time in the Middle East, and you hear some crazy stories about God bringing people to himself. Stories that don't necessarily fit into my closed theology. I do know that God can bring people into anyone's life so that they can hear the gospel and they will repent and see their need of a Savior. He sent someone to share it with you after all, too. The Holy Spirit gave you a heart that enabled you to believe. And he received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And something we have seen throughout Acts so far is that evangelism was not an occasional or sporadic thing. It was a constant proclaiming of the word to anyone who would hear. And some people wouldn't even hear. So regardless of your giftings, maybe you're not the preacher. The gospel is to be preached. Someone needs to hear the gospel in order to be saved. And God uses Philip's faithful witness to call a man to himself and can't help but wonder, with this man's authority being so great in his country, what his faith would do as he goes back to Ethiopia 
and begins to explain the joy of his salvation to his fellow people. The gospel was breaking into breaking another boundary. It is now going to the ends of the earth. Not only must the gospel be spoken, but as it's heard, it brings a call of obedience, as we see in verses 36 to 40. The gospel is a call to obedience. And what is the response of this Ethiopian man to the message about Jesus? It's simple. I need to get baptized. He has responded to the message of the gospel because it's not just information, but it is a call to obedience. A call to respond in repentance and belief. He does something when he heard the good news. He agrees, that God, he agrees with God that he is a sinner. He renounces his sin and turns his back on that old way of life by repenting. And he and believes and he puts all of his belief, all of his confidence in the person of Jesus, who is his substitute, whose death was enough to rescue him from hell that he deserves. And when he does this, he says to Philip, See, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And verse 37, if you noticed, you're like, Wait, there's a mistake in the Bible. Because it jumps from 36 to 38. So 37 is not in there because it's not in all manuscripts, but this is what it says. You can read in your footnotes. And Philip said, in response to the eunuch man, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he replied, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. See, Philip answered the man saying that baptism is for all those who've repented of their sin, who see that they're wrong in God's right, and who also believe that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is sufficient. So the Ethiopian man proclaims that he believes. He is trusting in Jesus alone for salvation, that Jesus is the Son of God, is the long-promised Messiah, born of the Virgin Mary, and lived a sinless life, who died for his sins and our sins and rose again three days later. This is an important political figure in Ethiopia, Okay? These guys did not travel alone. And if you notice, in just the language, he at least had somebody else with him who was driving the chariot. But he would have had an entourage. So he wasn't just professing his faith to just Philip, but in front of everyone who was with him. This baptism wasn't just his faith going public between two people, but in front of all who were with him. That is the next step for this man. So in verse 38, he commanded the chariot to stop. Right? You can't command yourself to stop something. And they both went down to the water. And Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. So if you claim to be a Christian, I need to say this explicitly, this is the next step for you. This is the next step. If you have not been baptized, if you claim to be a Christian, the next step is to be baptized. It is when your faith goes public. It's when you publicly align yourself with Jesus. It's, in the act of the, it's an act of the church where the person proclaims their faith and the church says, we believe this to be true. It is a picture of having your sins washed away. First, God saved this man. Then he gets baptized. 
And as Philip immersed the Ethiopian man under the water, it was symbolism of this man's sins being washed away, that he was forever united with Christ, that he was moved from a spiritual death to a spiritual life, that he had passed through the eternal judgment safely. And this was a joyous experience for this man. And I'm not sure, I'm, I'm sure it was for Philip too. I'm putting words in Philip's mouth. But as a pastor, it's one of the most joyful things. To see God working in someone's life that, to the point that they want to publicly profess their faith, that is rejoicing. We've had baptisms. What is our response? We clap, right? Some people whistle, yell, whatever. It's a joyful thing. And what's interesting is that these examples we have seen so far in all of these conversions, we see them as mass conversions, right? We see 3,000 people added to the church. We see probably close to the whole city come to Jesus. Now we just see a person, which is great because that's normal, right? That's normal. And here we have seen the personal side of evangelism as somebody takes the time to walk with somebody else who's searching, who God has given him a heart that enables to believe. He opens the word of God and just walks it through. You don't have to come up with your own script. You kind of have it. Just read it. So even in this baptism, God sovereignly uses it to, as a proclamation of the gospel to all who are watching this Ethiopian man being baptized. You've got to think about all these people who probably have never been to Jerusalem. I don't know. Some of them probably have never been to Jerusalem. They're kind of wondering, thinking, why is this guy going to, eat, to Jerusalem to worship? He can't even get into the building. Why is he reading this out loud? And now this happens. In verse 39, we see the outcome, and he went on his way rejoicing. Now this man had traveled so far distant, despite his political power, was excluded from worship, both as a Gentile and because of his physical condition. He was now no longer an outsider. Because of his faith in Jesus Christ, he was now a child of the living God. No longer was he an object of wrath, but a co-heir with Christ. No longer was he facing eternal judgment, but eternal life. And when he comes to realize that in Christ, Isaiah 56 verses 3 to 5 is now fulfilled, what is his response? He rejoices. He's joyful. No longer was he defined by who he was, but now whose he is. No longer was he excluded from temple worship. Now he was with Christ forever. It's through Jesus that this man will know redemption and renewal of every part of his life. That's what brings joy into his life. I was thinking about that this week. Steph and I were talking uh, yesterday about the Sunday school lesson, and she you know, just talking about how God takes these things that come out of sin. Let's say languages. Languages is a result of sin. By the time we get to Revelation, they're used to worship God. We just learned about Moses, who was not allowed to go into the promised land because of his disobedience. But if you look back to the transfiguration, where is he? He's with Jesus in the promised land. Here this man is a eunuch excluded from worship. But in Jesus, 
He's now with Christ. We see how everything is renewed through Christ. So, how can that not bring joy? Sometimes as Christians, we need to be a little bit more happy. When we first come to believe the gospel, we, as one commentary said it, we, often, we are often conscious of what we did and said that resulted in our conversion, right? We said something like a sinner's prayer or, you know, Jesus come into my heart or something like that. Commentary continues on. Later, when the depths of our sin are uncovered and we learn that we were actually in much worse condition than we could fear, we appreciate the truth of that matter. Our coming to Jesus Christ in faith was the result of the Spirit's work in our lives, drawing us to embrace the Savior offered in the gospel. So how can that not be true of us all? If you truly are a Christian, as you reflect upon what God has done in your life, how could the response not be joy in all circumstances? How great is our God? And as I look at throughout church history, some of the most important names, like Cyprian or Tertullian or Augustine, were all African. And I can't help but wonder how God used this man to spread the gospel, not just into Ethiopia, but to the ends of the earth. The gospel will overcome all boundaries because it's God's gospel. And then we get to verse 40. And I didn't know where to fit it, so I'm keeping it in this point. Was Philip teleported? Can God do that? Was Star Trek around? <laughs> and it's easy. If you're like me, I've talked about this before. You're like, squirrel, cool. We missed the entire point of the passage. God is omnipotent, which means he's all-powerful. He's omnipresent, which means he's in all places. So teleportation would definitely be within his ability. Whether this is an example of genuine biblical occurrence of teleportation, I have no idea. All I know is that Philip was in one place and then immediately in another. So don't get stuck on Philip being brought from one place to another. But be more in awe by what you learn about who God is. God can do that. He invented the laws of physics. He is all-powerful. He is in all places. So he can do whatever he wishes. And we see that in the man who is a eunuch from Ethiopia. What do we know from this text is that God is able to supersede the laws of travel and significantly expedite the process. If God wants to teleport someone or something, he's going to. If God said the gospel is going to be proclaimed in Syria it's go or Caesarea, it's going to be. He could and would, if that be humans or things. But again, don't miss the point. How great is our God? And notice Philip's reaction when he was teleported. He just keeps on preaching. He preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. 
And so what, you may ask? God sovereignly uses the faithful witness of his own to call people to himself. Remember the song, I sought the Lord and afterwards I knew he moved my soul to seek him, seeking me. It was not I that found, O Savior, true. No, I was found of thee. He was a man that the Holy Spirit, Philip, gave, oh, sorry, this eunuch, by the power of the Holy Spirit, was given a heart that gave him a desire to know God more. If Philip came up to him and said, hey, do you know what you're reading? The man's response could have been one of two things. Yeah, I got this. Like a man saying he doesn't need directions. Or he humbled himself and said, no, I don't know. Will you come and teach me? You see God working in the heart of that individual. In his pride, he could have rolled up his scroll and drove away. But God was working in his heart far long before Philip showed up. The Holy Spirit used the faithful witness of the gospel to convict this man of his need of a savior. This mission is entirely of God's initiative as it is today. Philip and us today are simply being faithful witnesses to the person and work of Jesus Christ. So God sovereignly uses the faithful witness of his own to call people to himself. And let us remember how Philip evangelizes. Apologetics is great. Being able to argue, I love arguing. Bring it on. But that's not what changes people's hearts. I can know all the facts of this world, but it's only the gospel that will convict. I must know the gospel, and I must preach the gospel. So I pray that we would be people of the word, that our love of, for God and knowing him would drive us into his word more and more and then drive us out to go into this sinful, broken, and hopeless world, declaring that there is justification and healing and hope in Jesus Christ. And I know Pastor Chris is working on starting a class soon on teaching us how to share the good news of Jesus Christ with those people in our lives. So bug him about that. But let's start by praying. Let's pray that we would prize and pursue God's holiness. And that we would have a burden and a commitment and endurance to strive daily after holiness in our lives. Let us pray that we would have an abiding delight in God's word. That we would always hunger for the truth while being ever satisfied with the truth. That no would, and let's maybe be more specific, you that we would be a Bible-saturated church in person so we can be ready to give an account of what our awesome God has done. How about we pray that we would be more and more impressed with Jesus every day, that God would cause us to grow in the, great, in the gospel and walk in a manner worthy of it. How about we pray that we would share the gospel this week using our careers or whatever you do to take the gospel to places it's never been to all of those desert places. Let's pray that our witness would be faithful and effective. Can you pray with me on those things this week and the weeks to come? Jesus said in Matthew 9, verses 37 to 38, then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. We always get stuck at verse 37. I don't think we like 38. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. I dare you to pray it. 
I dare you. You want to know what's going to happen? You're going to quickly realize that you are the laborer being sent out to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Lord and teaching them to obey all that, they has, have, all that he has commanded. God sovereignly uses the faithful witness of his own to call people to himself. So will you join with me, pouring out our hearts to God, that we may be these things? And I wonder, I just wonder what God will do. And if you have heard the gospel, and you have received the, go- the gospel, your next step is clear. Get baptized. See, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And we have a baptism class on March 7th. So if you call yourself a Christian and haven't been baptized, I strongly encourage you to take that next step of obedience, to bring your faith public. So sign up, talk to me, but let us remember, God sovereignly uses the faithful witness of his own to call people to himself. Let us pray.